Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get to the show, I want to tell you about another podcast you're going to love, Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle brings you the daily realities of life inside prison, shared by those living it, accompanied by stories of post-incarceration life. They're just wrapping up their sixth season, which covers topics like COVID-19 and the San Quentin prison, parents in prison, and stories of life in the vehicles that drive people to and from prisons. You can listen and subscribe at earhustlesq.com or wherever you're listening right now. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. It's a great day to be alive. Uh, I feel very good today, Ravi. How are you feeling? You know, I was kind of singing Amazing Grace to myself on my way over here. You know, good job, Garth Brooks, and good job, America. This was such a wonderful ceremony, uh, and I, I honestly feel physically different after that inauguration like i have less anxiety i i feel i like this is such a cliche but i honestly feel like there's like a weight off of my shoulders like i just physically feel a little lighter yeah me too uh, i was singing it's a great day to be alive by uh daryl scott good song <laughs> All morning good song know? um and uh i i feel that weight coming off too it's like it's just a huge fucking relief. And it's there's so many different reasons, right? I mean, there's the, the most basic reason, which is that Donald Trump no longer has the nuclear football. I mean, that's one reason to to feel relief. Uh, there also is just the fact that even after the election, good Lord, we had a violent insurrection. We've had all these things like that thing of like, okay, it seems like we won, but there must be some other shoe that's going to drop. And I think that is a lot of what it's been like to be somebody who didn't support Trump over the last few years. It just every time you feel like you've taken a couple of steps forward, it's like, oh, nope, not not at all. Literally two weeks ago when we did the pod, we were making fun of ourselves and other Democrats who couldn't take a W, you know, couldn't take a win. Mm -hmm. And then literally two, like an hour later, the Capitol insurrection happened, like a perfect confirmation of our pessimism as a party and as people. But Today, there's, it's you know there are going to be ups and downs inevitably, and I think we're prepared for that. But this was such a wonderful ceremony. You know, I mean, I guess maybe it's it's not cool anymore. Or it's almost it felt like it was a bygone era. The idea of like enjoying American ceremony and and enjoying like patriotic songs and and demonstrations that felt like it was gone in a lot of ways, even though like it was done in a performative fashion during uh, the Trump years. But I guess it just felt like for a lot of us, we couldn't be a part of it. And what made me feel emotional about this 
was not just the fact that it was, you know, our side and that, that I did feel a part of it. It's that I felt like we were including everyone in it, that it wasn't just us, you know? And, and, and I was thinking about like the last four years, just what we individually have been through. Like you and I met cause you started a, you dropped what you were doing with your life and got a bunch of other people together who were willing to drop what they were doing and try and respond to what had happened in the country. And, you know, and I've been very involved, uh, in a, in a myriad of ways. And, and just like so many of our friends have, and, and I was, I got pretty emotional watching just the run up to it. And then, and then especially when Kamala took the oath, I was like, well, that's that. I'm definitely going to cry. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office on which I am about to enter. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. And, and, and that, that just felt cathartic. The country needed today. 100%. And actually, you know, it's, it, the whole day has been an emotional ride. I started the day by journaling and, and I dedicated my entire entry today to just reflecting on what has happened personally uh, over the past four years. And it's four years is a long time, you know. Um, and I was trying to just connect to each moment of my life over the past four years that was significant to the significant world and country events around it, which is a little easier because it's a Verena, like you mentioned, I've been working in politics. So it was like very easy to remember, oh, like I met Jason, you know, three weeks after the election. I, you know, I was at the um, protests of the Muslim ban and I met this person outside of the courthouse in, in Brooklyn. And it was, you know, for all of the heartache and the pain and the suffering and the victims of the past four years, the flip side of it, which is definitely cold comfort, is that along the way these past four years, you know, I think you and I both had a similar experience, which is where we got to meet a lot of wonderful people fighting the good fight. And I, I couldn't help but think about them today as we kind of reflect on what, what has been a very, very long four years. Yeah, that's the thing about going through something really difficult. And, and Biden in his speech really alluded to this idea that you know, when he talked about how we've been tested, we've come through it, and now we're stronger. And and I think we all have mixed feelings about that, and we want to believe that. But I've been, you know, I'm working on this book about my experience with the military and then post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. And I've just been working on this chapter in the last two weeks about my time in Afghanistan. And it's a, it's a much more sort of detailed retelling of it than I've ever done. And one of the things that and it's not been the easiest thing to write, but one of the things that it's reminded me of is the incredible sense of family that I got from the people that I was with, even the people I was with for very short periods of time over there, just because when you go through something really difficult with other people, there's a, there's a special bond there. And so the hope is that that is, that can happen for America right now. And I, and I think that's what Biden really did a, a tremendous job of trying to point us toward. Yeah. And, you know, one, one other thing, talked about the musical acts, right? And I think a lot of the commentary I've seen and, and texts from friends, et cetera, were about that part of the ceremony. And I was reflecting on like, why is that? Is it just because it's, it's a little bit more entertaining and colorful than a political speech? Or is, it, is there something deeper going on? And, you know, my thesis here is that, you know, Democrats are accused by Republicans and the sort of Ben Shapiro wing of trying to alter the fabric of America, right? And then I, I, I thought about, and that there's some kind of culture where we want people to apologize for being white, et cetera. And I, I saw, you know, the, the, the singers on stage and, and the poet, which I'm sure we'll get to, 
And I thought to myself, this isn't excluding anybody. You know, we had Garth freaking Brooks on there and he did a really good job. Mm -hmm. And we had Lady Gaga and we had Jennifer Lopez and we had uh, his Irish Catholic priest. And we had the African-American preacher uh, from Delaware. And it was just an inclusive ceremony. And I think it, it, it meant that we can we can come together and there doesn't have to be subtraction. You know, we don't have to exclude voices. Uh, and that like by including other voices in the ceremony and in his administration, that doesn't mean that other people have to lose out. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, I'm sure that was purposeful, but I, f I found it really powerful. Like the, just the fact that there's, there's just a different vision of America from the moment they got on that stage, I thought just really struck me. Yeah, that's, I, it's a good point. You could physically feel it like, oh, it, it wasn't just, oh, we're going to go back to how it was or the, the trajectory we were on with Obama. It was, oh, this is that updated like that. You know, it was next level, I thought. I mean, and, and look, I, everybody up there deserves credit for it. I honestly, I thought Senator Roy Blunt did a pretty good job. Like I, I thought his his comments were, were spot on for the day. And I thought he did a really good job of being the Republican who was trying to, you know, show the example of unity. I mean, and he's there because he he's in charge of the inaugural committee. But like, I thought when he came up after Garth Brooks and, and talked about President Obama's singing Amazing Grace uh, at the church in uh, in South Carolina, like, I, I thought that that was a classy and very appropriate move. And it, and it was cool that it, it swept everybody up in it. I was definitely, definitely moved by that. And I want to believe and there's a cynical part of me that tells me that not to trust anything. Oh, sure. They're, they're, they're still politicians. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. And this is where I come out on this is that we have to trust our leader now. You know, we have to trust the president of the United States and Joe Biden and what he said in his speech. And I think this is a good transition to his speech, which is he made a very clear message to everybody, including us, which is try again. You know, he said, start afresh. Uh, all of us have to listen to one another. And he talked about how we just have to come together and just give it another try and we can't give up on each other. But the American story depends not on any one of us, not on some of us, but on all of us, on we, the people, who seek a more perfect union. This is a great nation. We are good people. And over the centuries, through storm and strife, in peace and in war, We've come so far, but we still have far to go. And it really moved me and it made me think, you know what? I, I'm not the decider here. I don't decide what we're all going to do. We elected somebody and we can't just reject his message as, as mere uh, jargon and platitudes. Like this is what he's, this is what his entire presidency is about. This was the whole election is about. And it made me, it inspired me to try again. And I think we have to take it day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. And if you see, you know, Roy Blunt up there and George W. Bush, who's been who's been just fine over, over the course of this election, or Mitch McConnell, who seems to there's a little daylight there. I'm certainly not ready to declare anything there. But, you know, I think we, we owe it to Biden to believe. Yeah. And I, I, I guess what I found refreshing, like I, I'm under no illusions that the hearts and minds of Roy Blunt or Mitch McConnell are changed. And all of a sudden they agree with us on major things. I don't I, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, is that with Trump out of the picture, there is a place where the Republicans who we disagree with the most 
can come to and say, okay, well, we're not going to disagree over like whether or not America should um, be burnt down in the name of trying to win, <laughs> you know, like it's good. It's good to have a president who leads us back to an example that says, we're going to have a winner. We're going to have, you know, a party that moves out of power, whether it's ours or another one. And we're not going to burn the place to the fucking ground to get our way. And the truth was that even the, even the politicians who we have the strongest disagreements with and whose views we find the most reprehensible, they were pretty much all bought in on that idea before Trump came along and made that unpopular on their side of the aisle. And so if, if nothing else happens, if it just says a lot to say, to have Mike Pence there and to have McConnell there, you know, just that little moment of normalcy to, to make the kind of behavior that we saw on January 6th, 10 degrees beyond cultural taboo and, and to put people like Holly and Cruz really on the outside of the circle of sanity, that, that's a big deal, and that's a big win if that can happen. Yeah, you know, another moving moment of the speech was when Biden, I think he referred twice to the fact that there was an insurrection at the very spot that he was giving his speech. So now, on this hallowed ground, we're just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation. We come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful, transfer of power as we have for more than two centuries. It was beautiful in many ways to be able to reclaim that physical space. And yet like really sad that in some ways it it makes us feel just like any other country, right? The idea that a president has to reclaim that space a couple weeks later, that as opposed to what we're used to, which is somebody referencing that and it be, being something that happened a hundred years ago. Right. Uh, you know, and and so, you know, in the past, it would have been like talking about, you know, the War of 1812 or or to me, like a, a similar moment would be President Obama, you know, referencing moving into the White House, a house that slaves built. Like that's the kind of moving moment that I'm accustomed to. And, and there's something really jarring about the idea that that reference is from two weeks ago in this speech. Uh, and, and I think it's just it, it makes it makes clear how, how great the challenge is, which my favorite line from the speech was Biden acknowledging that people have not always been willing to go along with his idea of unity and bipartisanship and working together. And I love the way he addressed it. He said, I, I know, know speaking, speaking of, of unity, unity can sound to some like a can foolish sound to some like a foolish fantasy these days. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. But I also know they are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. The battle is perennial and victory is never assured. And what I loved about that was that was Biden saying, like, look, I know that you all think that I'm from a bygone era and that I don't understand what's going on and that I'm speaking past this moment. But what I'm trying to tell all of you is that this is not new, that I actually am more hip to it than anybody. I know we've been dealing with it for a long time and we're just going to have to keep dealing with it. And that's our responsibility. Like, I thought that was really a poignant way to get that across. 
you know, the question of Biden and how old he is uh, was lurking in the back of my head uh, during this speech for many reasons. You know, one, I thought about how many of these he sat through um, <laughs> at, in the audience and how it must have felt for him to, to be at that podium, having run for president for the first time when I was five years old, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I think the other, and this is where I'm trying to build the architecture of hope, is that there is a divide, I think, between the young people in Washington whose ambitious ambitions are ahead of them and the older people whose ambitions are largely realized and behind them. And you think about Biden and McConnell as two examples of people who you've got to imagine that they realize that they've lived more years on this earth than, than they're going to live in the future, you know, not to be morbid. And that hopefully the, the events of two weeks ago have shaken some people, and it certainly isn't going to be the Cruises and the Hollies of the world who are addicted to their own ambition. But the hope is that if this thing is the best version of this story, and they're definitely a worse version of this story, but the best version of the story is that some people are shaken out of whatever stupor they've been in for, you know, for some of them a long time, and that they wake up and say, you know what, like, what else do I have to lose here? Like, maybe doing the right thing is, is, is my legacy. It's really interesting because, you know, it's, it's really popular in American politics on both sides of the aisle to talk about the need for fresh blood and to lament the fact that so many of, of our options in this, in this campaign, both through the primary and, and, and eventually, you know, the only two real options in the general were so old. And, and it's interesting, like for me, I mean, I'm, I'm turning 40 in a few months, which isn't that old, but I, you know, I, I first ran for office when I was 26 and I absolutely bought into the idea that this should be a young man or young woman's game. And I, I definitely now, and maybe it's biased because I'm getting older, like I kind of see the wisdom of the idea, not of, yeah, there's the wisdom of experience and all that, but I actually think it's the wisdom of no longer giving a fuck. It, yeah. it you know, it, it's because I think about like where I am in my life right now, like I'm much more effective in the things that I do, whether it's this podcast or my you know main job, which is building houses for, for homeless vets. Like I'm way more effective in it because I do not care hardly at all, any, or at least any more than the average vain person, like how I'm perceived in it. Whereas when I was a, an ambitious, you know, young politician trying to climb the ranks, like thinking about how I was perceived was part and parcel to whether I could achieve things, right? Because the idea was like, if I was well-received, I could get into a position where I could make a change. And so it was very hard to separate the two. And I think about like Mitt Romney, you know, Mitt Romney has not entirely satisfied us and our listeners over the last couple of years, but boy, he's been a completely different Mitt Romney than he was in 2008 and 2012. And a lot of people will have a lot of reasons for that. I think it's because of what you just mentioned. Mitt Romney has gotten to the point where he's like, I've run the race. I've done those things. And now I'm, I'm just here to do what I think is right. And, and like, that's where I am in my life. And I think it makes me way more effective. And yeah, I am very hopeful that we could have more people in Washington who it's fine if they're young, if they're old, whatever, who really feel like they have uh, done what they're going to do and, you know, in their career. And, and now they've got to just do something with it. Before we get off of the speech and the, the inauguration as a whole, let's go to the other, other end of the spectrum. Let's go to the youth 
I talk about Amanda Gorman, the poet laureate from 2017. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. I thought that poem and just her delivery of it and just her essence was absolutely like it was like a bolt of lightning and i have never heard of her before but i got the sense that she better hold on to her seat because she's gonna go from zero to a hundred in terms of public recognition (laughs) after that i I thought she it was so beautiful and it was so unifying like it was so perfectly on the message uh and uh, yeah i mean it, it was really moving yeah i didn't know anything about her either and and I'm determined to find out a lot because not since like my poetry class in college have I been like, you know, I need to, I need to read more of that person's poetry. <laughs> like, but I feel that way now. Absolutely. She had a couple of lines that I just want to mention to listeners. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And to me, that struck with me because I, I meet a lot of people who say, let's just not talk politics. Let's never talk politics. You know, uh, like almost like it's a rude thing to do. Uh, or like I'm apolitical, et cetera, which was definitely we've talked about previously with Swathi is was like a Silicon Valley trope for a long mm-hmm. time that that I think they've now they've converted from in large part. <laughs> I thought that was a, like a really powerful line. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think she should be like mandatory, close out every ceremony, every, like, you know, like ball games. I don't care. Like just and now and now Amanda Gorman will we'll hear from her. <laughs> like, Being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Ugh. It's such a beautiful line. You know, I don't know. I don't have much else to say, but just men. Wow. Well, yeah, it's the whole idea, and I think she did this as well, making the distinction between claiming that it is a perfect union and the idea that we are just constantly trying to make it more perfect, which, you know, and I I think she said something along the lines of, you know, I'm not even going to try and paraphrase her. She's a poet. But the idea that just because it's uh, not perfect doesn't mean it's broken. I, I, I was listening to it thinking if I was one of the speechwriters on Biden's speech, which was a tremendous speech, I'd have been thinking, I really just, instead of having her finish the event, we should have just made her part of the speechwriting team. Um, But it was much better delivered by her. Well, it does tell you, and and I know we're going to move off of this, but like, it does tell you a little bit about how the the politics of commentary have changed. Because I think in a previous world, people would have been like, she upstaged Biden. But I think what people really came away with was Biden and has assembled a group of people and change the tone and it's and the way he's carried himself as an elected leader is is really the it's it's not me it's all of us it's the movement and he's quietly built that kind of ethos uh in his leadership and i thought that's why you didn't see a lot of the upstaging points out there that's a good point and it's it's why you're right the commentary has changed and it's changed immensely in the last two weeks and i don't know whether that stays the case or not or to what what degree, uh, how, how long it takes for that to fade. But I have noticed that there's much less of a horse race, you know, both sides-ism, let's, let's treat everything the same. I mean, and much more of a, man, we've all been through something together. And aren't we glad that there seems to be some sanity and, and, a, and a steady hand here? 
Well, Jason, I've been away from the country for a few months and I've been using ExpressVPN because I use it for things like using my Netflix account, HBO and all that, because depending on where you are, they only give you certain content. But it's really about more than that. More than 100 Twitter users got their accounts hacked recently, and that's their passwords, email addresses, phone numbers, etc. There are a lot of high-profile people who this was it's affected, including Joe Biden. And through ExpressVPN, you not only can just you know access the U.S., because you want to access content, but you can also use a VPN to protect your personal data online. Which at this point is as important as like putting your stuff in the bank instead of under your mattress. I mean, it's like this stuff is is worth a lot. The value is high. It makes sense. ExpressVPN is an app that funnels your data through a secure encrypted tunnel. I love that line because it reminds me of the whole idea of tubes in the internet, but so that no matter what device you use, you can have peace of mind every time you use the internet. The app connects with just one click. It's lightning fast. Best part is ExpressVPN works on up to five devices simultaneously, so you and your whole family can stay protected. If a breach can happen to powerful individuals, it can easily happen to you. Protect yourself with ExpressVPN, the VPN rated number one by CNET, Wired, and countless others. And if you visit expressvpn.com majority54 right now, you can arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash majority54. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash majority54. Visit expressvpn.com slash majority54 to learn more. So anybody who listened to last week's episode learned that my wife came to the United States as a refugee from the Soviet Union at the age of seven, which means my in-laws and all my wife's cousins and everybody, they all speak Russian. They're from Russia. And when we first started dating many, many, many years ago, I didn't understand anything anybody was saying. So what would happen is I would hear a bunch of Russian and then I would hear my name and then everybody would laugh. And I was like, this is an untenable situation. So I went and I took a, a couple of years of really uh, like intensive Russian in college. And I remember the moment that I was able to call everybody out on it because I was sitting, putting on my, my shoes. My, I was wearing cowboy boots and I was putting them on and all her cousins were uh, saying a bunch of stuff. And then I heard them say Sipagi, which is boots in Russian and then laugh. And then I was like, yellow blue, Mayu Sipagi, which meant I love my boots. And they were shocked. And it was like, <laughs> after that, they didn't talk behind my back in Russian again. Now, I then went to Afghanistan, used my Russian a bunch uh, over there with people who had worked with the Soviets. And now it's like almost gone. So I am excited to use Babbel, uh, which is sponsoring this podcast, to try and refresh my Russian so that we can speak it around the house and pass it on to our kids. Yeah, Jason, I just started using Babbel to pick back up my Italian. And I love it. Um, and actually, right before I recorded this podcast, I did three lessons, which is my goal every day is to do three. I had like a spare 45 minutes between the inauguration and this podcast. And I did, I did three lessons there. And what I love about it is they mix different kinds of learning modalities and ways of teaching you things like whether it's vocabulary, auditory, you can listen to a conversation between people in the language, and then you can kind of answer questions about what it is that they're talking about, which helps you improve your listening. What's cool about Babbel is that their lessons are created by over 100 language experts. They don't rely on AI like a lot of these other apps. What they've done is proven to be scientifically effective. And you could choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and yes, Russian. And you could start your uh, new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54 for an extra three months free. Babbel, language for life. All right, 
Well, that was all very heavy. Let's do Quarantine Corner. Ravi, you can uh, start us off. So, you know, this week I just wanted to talk about the power of having a coach in your life. And, you know, it's something that I've done mostly in my life through just friends, colleagues, and then sometimes mentors, like basically the volunteer route where I just ask people to help and invite them to give me feedback on various things. It's, it's how I learned to, to start a school. It's how I, you know, first got my way in politics. Uh, and lately I've been taking it to the next level by actually hiring coaches in my life, which obviously is not the only way to do it, but it's, it's made a big difference. And I don't spend a ton of money on this, um, but... Uh, I've, uh, one example I wanted to share, which I think was relevant to you is that I have a little bit of a writing coach now and he's your cousin, Sam, and he and I have been getting together every week and I've been sharing different drafts of this novel that I'm writing. And he, and previously he'd helped review some TV show concepts I've had. And it's just really motivating to have somebody in your life who's there to give unvarnished feedback and motivate you to keep working through something really difficult. Um, it's certainly what I brought to surfing as well here. And I, I was just thinking to myself, like, wow, I've I've really embraced the idea of coaches in my life. And, and I feel like I'm a lot better for it. And well, I, you know, one of the reasons why I brought it up was that I know you're working very hard on a book. And so I just wanted to get a sense of like, what's your routine like in writing the book? You mentioned it already on this podcast, but like, how, how do you find time? Like, what's your what's your sort of system and routine for getting words on the page every day? It's funny. So Sam is helping me through my book as well. And my routine right now is, is not like a, it's not a good one in the sense that um, I think we're, I'm just really hustling uh, to get through this. So I guess that's good. But uh, what I did finally do yesterday uh, is I, I, my scheduler and I figured out like, okay, I need some dedicated time. So we picked out some days in February to just set aside because as I'm sure you found, writing is so momentum oriented. 100%. And yeah, and it's like, it's really hard when it's like, okay, I set an hour and a half aside. Well, the first 30 minutes, I mean, I might get through one freaking paragraph, but then in the hour after that, I'm powering through a bunch of stuff. And the other thing is, I, I'm a pretty good writer. I'm very slow, and uh, which means I'm not that good. <laughs> and and it, what it makes me think of is, so my great uncle, who's a, a Broadway composer and a very successful one, is also like singularly modest, like just an incredibly modest uh, and humble person. And he will never acknowledge like that he's one of the most gifted musical talents in generations. That's not a thing he thinks or says. But what he does say sometimes is like when he gets to like he he collaborated on a song with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's a like a protege of his. And he was really excited about it. And I remember him saying, you know, he works like I do. He works fast, which is the closest my Uncle John will ever come to being like, he is also a rare genius talent. <laughs> <laughs> a piece of advice I heard John Grisham once give, which he said, don't focus on the genius writers is what he said. He says, pick up a book from like, and I won't name an author because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to poke fun at people, but pick a book from like, you know, the kind of bestseller but crappy kind of fiction books that just sell a ton, but you might not really respect them as an author or as a writer. Uh, but but people are compelled by their stories, and he's like, just read a bunch of those, and it will motivate you, right? Because you're like, if these people can do it, I can do it. So that was Grisham, and I think about that when it comes to <laughs> speed, and I try to keep that in my head because, like, you know, there are rare talents that always put you know, a plus work on the page, but it seems like even the greatest, like the Stephen Kings of the world and like the John Grishams who, who, who kind of are both literary and super successful 
have a lot of bad writing days. When I was writing my, my, my first book, somewhere in there, I, I sat down with President Obama, who was starting to work on, uh, on the book that just came out. And, and he was sort of lamenting a little bit the, uh, the difficulty of writing something that he, he recognized was also a historical text. Uh, and so it, it required a lot of research and that kind of thing. And he said something really interesting about writing that was really good advice. He said, you know, to me, writing is kind of like working out. He's like, you just try and do it every day. And some days you go in there and you're just kind of walking around the gym and you're just sort of like going through the motions. And some days you're in there and you're just feeling it. But the key is just going back into the gym every day. And, and I was like, man, that's super wise. <laughs> and I've tried to keep that in mind. All right. With that, we have some voicemails. Hi, guys. I wanted you to talk about what I call the DMV argument. When you talk to someone who really has well-founded conservative beliefs, uh, the argument is that once the government gets your money, once they take it, they're just going to be wasteful. Do you want everything to be just like the DMV where it takes forever and they're just wasting your money and your time? So what are good examples of programs and institutions that the government administers efficiently and effectively? And how do you tell people that not all of your money turns into the DMV? Thanks, guys. Bye. So this makes me think of my friend Jocelyn, uh, Jocelyn Benson, the Secretary of State of Michigan, who I remember when she was running for Secretary of State uh, in 2018, uh, I, was, I was given a speech at, a, at the Michigan Democratic Party, whatever, their annual thing. And I saw her and we were talking and, and I said, so what's your plan? How are you going to win? And she, cause she had run before. And so we'd known each other a while. And she said, I'm going to tell every uh, Michigander th that my commitment to them is that I'm going to make sure that whether it's because in that state, the secretary of state's in charge of the DMV, that whether they are renewing their license or voting, that they will get in and out in 30 minutes. And that's my promise to them. And I go, Oh my God, that is an amazing campaign plan. I said, Oh, uh, can you do it? And she goes, yeah, actually, I checked. I can. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it just reminds me of the fact that like, we allow these sort of uh, presumptions to go by unchallenged. And that being that in these certain situations, government has to be ineffective. And I think that maybe is where we need to challenge things. It's that, no, instead of saying like, oh, do we want all government to be like the DMV? I think we should come back and be like, hey, why do we accept the fact that the DMV takes so long? Right. And I might get in trouble from listeners on this one, but in the two states that I've li lived in and I've spent a lot of time in the DMV, the DMV has gotten a lot better since when I was a kid. And and I actually, this is not a trivial point. It's gotten better because of, I think, good leaders. Like a good example is Tennessee, where Phil Bredesen, uh, who was Democratic governor of Tennessee a while back, was so fed up with the quality of the DMV that he just pushed his team to reform it. And like Jocelyn Benson, had a goal, and I don't, I don't remember what the, the, the time amount was that he wanted it to get down to, but he implemented a system for his DMV that dramatically cut down the wait time. And I know as somebody who lived there for six years in Tennessee, it was in and out every time I needed to get something there. And I had a similar experience in New York recently. Um, and so my point there is actually the DMV has innovated and you go into most DMVs in, in the country, you take a number and you're separated by what you're looking to get, whether it's something that'll take a long time or a very short period of time. But the larger point is, you know, 
private sector versus government, et cetera. What do we want in government's hands, et cetera? This is the responsibility of elected Democrats who have power to be competent. Uh, people like Jocelyn Benson. Um, and this is why, like Danica Room, who, uh, when Danica was running uh, for the Virginia State Legislature, was talking about things like fixing potholes on the highway and, you know, like decreasing people's commute times and things like that. Because, you know, listeners have heard me on this before. I live in a state where there are tons of Democratic leaders. We have full control over government and things don't work. Uh, and that is a pox on all of our houses and it delegitimizes the entire democratic experiment of taking care of more vulnerable people through government action. Uh, and it's on us to just make government work as well as possible. And that's, I think, the big charge to the Biden era. And I think the Danica Rome point is a really good one, because for those who don't know, Danica Rome was elected in 2017, and she was the very first transgender person ever elected to a, a legislative office uh, in the United States, the first state legislator who was transgender ever elected. And by the way, she defeated a Republican incumbent in that election. And the reason I say all that is because that was none of that was what her campaign was about. To your point, her campaign was about traffic in Northern Virginia, other things that just weren't working, that government wasn't doing effectively, which brings me to what I think ultimately is what we have to lean into here, which is not shying away from this idea that government doesn't work, but leaning into the fact that we are the party of governing. We are the party that actually believes government has a purpose. And what it, what it makes me think of is, and I, I may have told this story on the pod before, I don't remember, but when I was in the state legislature, I was on the budget committee. And every year, there was an effort by the Republicans to uh, go through the budget and make sure that there were no salaries by anyone in government. This includes PhDs, scientists, you know, people who you know have high degree of education and who it really matters that they be employed by the state government, that none of them have a salary higher than the lieutenant governor. And the argument for this was that if the second most powerful person in the state made $85,000 a year, then nobody else on the state payroll should make more than $85,000 a year. Never mind the fact that the lieutenant governor was a part-time position uh, in the state. They didn't care about that. And what that communicated and what always killed me about it was it communicated this basic conservative idea about government that if you work in the public sector, it's because you weren't good enough to work in the private sector. And, and more importantly, that it doesn't matter who works in government. So to your point about good leadership, our argument has got to be, no, see, it really matters that we have leaders who think government should work really well, whether it's the DMV or Medicare or the VA or FEMA, it doesn't matter. Like, when we have people who don't think government matters, we will get government that sucks. This is what it's about. And I think this is a question that is that we have to answer moving forward that is not necessarily answered by the past. I think there are plenty of Democratic leaders, Obama being one of them, who were incredibly competent uh, and so dedicated to making government work. And you could read a lot of work by people like Michael Lewis to talk about this, who also then talks about the sort of political and government arsonists in the GOP who are trying to, as Grover Norquist said, you know, they want government so small that they could strangle it in a bathtub, I think was the Grover Norquist quote. Their project is to drown, make government drown it, not work. Yeah. Drown it in a ba bathtub, yeah. I guess you could strangle anything anywhere, but we you drown it in a bathtub, um, which is just... <laughs> no matter its size, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry about that, everybody. All right, let's no, go into another know, Robbie, voice. It's, a, it's, good that you, it's good that you are not super knowledgeable on different ways to strangle or drown things. I think that's fine. Hi, Jason and Ravi. Uh, my name is Jason, calling from 
very red, very rural Idaho. I can't thank you guys enough for the work you do. I've been listening since like episode one a million years ago. And I've got a question for you guys. Being that I live and work in very rural red Idaho, um, the county I work in went 85% for Trump. After the events at the Capitol the other day, sitting in the office with a boss and a coworker, they both unprompted said they would never vote for Donald Trump again if he ran. They both said unprompted that they don't believe they'll ever see another Republican president in their lifetime. And they both, again, unprompted, said this is basically it. The Republican Party is done. There's going to be such a big divide in the party now, worse than what there was with the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus guys. I wondered if you guys had any thoughts, if you'd heard any similar things, talking to the people you guys know. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Enjoyed the show. And looking forward to the next one. Take it easy. First of all, thank you, Jason, for the voicemail. And given the fact that you have been a listener since episode one, that you asked a fantastic question, it's a great voicemail. And most of all, that you live in a county where you are 15%, you are you are the 15% that didn't vote for Trump. To me, Ravi, this guy is the recipient of our Headspace Meditation app six month you know, free membership. Uh, yeah, I think we should absolutely give him the Headspace Meditation app. I think he's going to need it. Uh, I've obviously opened up with listeners about the struggles in my own life. And I think the Biden speech gives us a roadmap, which is don't give up. Uh, and I think that, you know, the his neighbors are giving him an opening and he needs to take yes for an answer. And I think continue to be patient and optimistic with the people in his life who are who are changing and, and believe in the capacity of people to change. Because honestly, that's the only way we survive as a country is if enough people are willing to change. I would also add to this a word of caution, which is this is a moment where we should be hopeful. And and I'm sure there are a lot of our listeners uh, who are hearing conversations like this one. Uh, I've heard some of this. And I think that we should make sure not to, um, not to buy into this too much, right? Like I saw the other day where it was trending topic that Trump was telling some people that he was going to break off and start a new party called the Patriot Party. Now, the hilarious irony of that aside, uh, what it mostly was was people being like, oh, my God, this would be huge. Look, that ain't going to happen. All right. Like starting a new political party takes time and money and focus. And Donald Trump has time. And that's it. And and so and we're not even sure he's going to have much of that with what he's going to be dealing with after this with defending lawsuits and that kind of thing. So that ain't going to happen. And I don't know the degree to which we're going to see some massive divide in the Republican Party. We That's sort of the narrative every single time a party loses the White House. Uh, you know, it was the it was the narrative for four years that we dealt with, even when we were winning midterm elections and special elections and taking the House. It was I don't know how they're going to overcome this divide in the party. Um so look, if that happens, great. We can't control it at all. So what we've got to do is focus on what we can control, which is the misgivings that people have coming out of the Trump era that I think a lot of right now are charged by the behavior of President Trump and, and of other Republicans like Holly and Cruz in the last, you know, in, in the time since November 3rd. The, the key here is connecting that behavior and connecting those things to policies that uh, we disagree with and that they stand for. And if we can successfully do that, we'll have a lot of success, but we've got to focus on what we can control and we can't be sitting around hoping that the other side, you know, doesn't have enough players and shows up and forfeits. Yeah. I, I want to definitely underline that. I think, 
you know, you've, we've lived long enough to know that moments of triumph uh, last a certain period of time. You know, and at the at the time of Obama's inauguration in 2008, I, I had similar feelings like, wow, how could this ever how could we ever come down from this mountain? Everything seems like it's been solved. You know, I, I honestly had the thought at that point where I, that I was like, maybe I should leave politics and and go become a doctor or something, because like we've solved that, you know, um, and it's just crazy, mm-hmm. obviously, like we're we're going to be in this fight forever. The GOP will recapture the presidency in our lifetime. They will recapture either or both chambers at various points. It's just how it works in this country. Uh, And, you know, honestly, like, I don't know if I would want the GOP to recapture power in its current form uh, anytime soon or ever. But, like, we also wouldn't want a world where Democrats, where where there's one party rule for 50 years. Anyway, because the version of this party in 50 years, if we're in one party rule for 50 years, is not going to be one that any of us are excited about. I remember getting elected Secretary of State of Missouri in 2012, and then going to the governor's prayer breakfast at the beginning of session in January of uh, 2013, um, right after I had had been uh, sworn in as Secretary of State and seeing a friend of mine who was a Republican state legislator, and he was kind of a moderate swing district guy. And we're talking and, you know, we had just won a bunch of elections. It was the year of Todd Akin. And he said to me, he said, you know, I I think it's going to be decades before a Republican is elected statewide in this state again. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, he, he probably knows something that I wouldn't know. I mean, he's he's in the Republican caucus. Like, that's really awesome. That's hopeful. Four years later, Donald Trump won my state by 19 points. So uh, let's let's not put too much stake in, in them collapsing and let's focus on us actually just getting better. The best version of this is that we attain power and hold it long enough that we accomplish a ton of great things for those vulnerable in our society and help improve our country's standing in the world, repair our democracy, and that we hold it long enough that they keep losing so that the calculus of change and reform within their party gets easier and easier and easier so that the Mike Murphys of the world and the Steve Schmitz of the world and the Nicole Wallaces of the world have more influence over the future of the party. And then, you know, maybe one day it's it's like we remember some of the battles, the ideological battles, and where there there was more of a, a principled foundation uh, that undergirded both parties. It's a great point. Like it's not just about trying to get things that are left ideas done. It's about trying to move the whole country, including the other party, more to the left. Yeah, more to the left, and and honestly, like left, but but you know, for me, it's like just I don't even call it left anymore. It's like foundational Forward. democracy yeah demo- foundational democracy principles are where i start which you know neither it shouldn't be neither left or right obviously there's one party that's more irresponsible by a long shot than the others but like just bring them along to basic ethics and morality and respect for the rule of law and democracy for grabbing or this week I'm on the board of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It's based here in Kansas City. Some of you may have seen the headlines recently that the Negro Leagues have finally been recognized as a major league. That's something that should have happened a long time ago. But a lot of that is because of the work and the advocacy that came out of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City over the years, starting with a guy named Buck O'Neill, who played for the Kansas City Monarchs. And is just like one of the most important people in, in, in our city's history. Uh, but really, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is an incredibly important place because it, it doesn't just tell the history of the Negro Leagues. It really tells the history of 
segregation and of a, a second class citizenship in this country told through the story of baseball. And it's a really remarkable place. And uh, when this zombie apocalypse lifts and people can travel again, I would encourage everybody to go to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City as a tourist. But in the in the meantime, you can go to nlbm.com. You can see quite a few uh, of the exhibits if you go there, but also you can make a contribution. It's a It's a really special place. All right, Ravi, happy America Day. <laughs> happy America Day to you, Jason. It is a fabulous America Day. Happy America Day to all of you out there. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Jason Kander. Ravi is on Twitter and Instagram at Ravi M. Gupta. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kimmet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.